this week's going to be a little bit different. Uh, if you're looking at the book of Ephesians, um, the first three chapters are, are doctrinal. They're, they're just, they're just kind of helping the church lead in, in doctrine. And it's describing the heavenly position of the church. How many know that, that God has uh, a high position for, for his church? All right. And, uh, and then chapters 4 through 6, it goes from doctrinal to, be, to practical. That's what I like about Paul is he gives you some good information, then he shows you how to live it out and why you should live it out. And this is, uh, this is uh, practical in, in uh, chapters 4 through 6 is describing the early condition of the church. Remember, the, this is the church of Ephesus. Um, Timothy was the pastor of this church. Paul was the pioneer of this church. Paul addressed this church a little bit. A little bit cooler temperature than he did the Galatians or in Second Corinthians. If you look at his temperament in those two books, he's a little more straightforward here. He's a little bit more laid back. Um, but here's a little uh, little tidbit for you. Um, the 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 portion of this book, Ephesians, is to take us from um, I, I talked about it starting doctrinally and then going to practical. It's to take us from belief to behavior. Sometimes we believe certain things, but that doesn't always change our behavior, right? I can remember when I was growing up, I knew I shouldn't do certain things and that I would get in trouble, but that didn't always change my behavior. Some of you can attest to that. Um, same thing, uh, and it's also, it's, not, it's also doctrinal, but it's also the duty of, of, of doing these things. It's position, but it's also the practice of doing these things. It's revelation and responsibility, so... Uh, this is how this book is split up. Um, we ascended, like I said last week. Uh, we talked about God's sovereignty, God's grace, the beauty of Christ's likeness. And this week, we're going down, 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 down to the dark, dank swamps of man's depravity. We start. We went up really high, and now we're gonna we're gonna go low, 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 low tonight. And uh, don't worry, we won't be there for very long, but it, it, it's essential to know these things in comparison to God's mercy. When we know our, uh, where our humanness and where our carnality comes from, we, when we compare it to God's grace and mercy, we can't help but be amazed by God's grace and mercy. So uh, the slew of depravity, or as, or as we could some call it, the swamp of carnality, um, this chapter starts off with one of your favorite subjects, whether you believe it or not. You know what that subject is? You. So, oh, wait, wait, TJ. I, that's not my favorite subject. I, I, I want to argue that point because I'll tell you this. If we were to take a group photo and we were to put it up on the screen tonight, the first person you would look for would be All right. So, you might as well just buckle up and say, I, I love myself, I love me some me, it's okay, and, uh, but we, we do. And so, uh, if you need a first heading for this uh, Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm excited about this chapter, I'll be honest with you, there's some great, uh, great truths in this chapter. Uh, if you need a subheading, it's by grace through faith, you could write that down as a, as a heading if you want, and uh, chapter 2 starts like this, verse 1. And you, told you it starts with your favorite subject, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. 
That's discouraging right off the get-go, get right? And he's talking about you. He's talking about me. The, uh, the ESV reads like what I just read, and it says, you are dead. In the, in the King James Version, it actually says, does anybody have a King James Version in here? Okay, what is it? Uh, I don't know if the New King James Version says it right. Well, the King James Version actually should say, and you, what's it say? And you hath he what quickened. Um, and, and can you tell me something about, the, is that italicized in your Bible? Okay, the reason that that is italicized in your Bible is that is, if you take the Greek transcripts and take them, and were to literally put them in there, if it's italicized, that means that it was not originally in the Greek. And you say, well, why would they do that? Why would, why would someone do that? Sometimes it's for language reasons. Sometimes it's for uh, just to make sure that it made sense to a people. I don't know. Anybody speak dual languages in here? You do? Oh, okay. So sometimes when you translate something from English to whatever other language that you speak, sometimes things get lost in translation at, at moments, right? And, and so that's what, so the writers here, I think they're doing the best with what they have to make sure that these things make sense. Doesn't mean that they're out of line, just, just means it's bad. What I think here, and this is my personal opinion, I think the reason that the writer put that, he hath quickened uh, you there, the reason being is he knows that the next three Verses are going to talk about the human condition, which is not good. And I believe that he is giving you a little bit of encouragement. Now, now that, that word, and you hath he quickened, is found in, in verse 5 of this very, very chapter. So I think he said that there to kind of give you a little bit of encouragement. Just so you know, you're about to get some bad news, but we're going to give you this just up front. And here's what we need to know. That word dead, everyone say dead. It's the Greek word nekros. And the Greek meaning for the word dead is the same as the English. You're pushing up daisies. It means you're not alive. You're not breathing. And so, uh, you know, just death is this. Death is the separation in three ways, um, as we know. And it's number one, the physical death. When someone dies from uh, this earth, a human being dies, they're, they're gone physically. You know what? Their body is here, but their spirit is not. And so... Uh, they, they are not present. And here, here's uh, the second thing is our spiritual death. Well, what do you mean by that? Um, some people are alive physically, but because they have no sensitivity towards the Lord or they don't know the Lord, they're dead spiritually. What do you mean by that? Well, if, if someone is not a believer and they don't believe that Jesus Christ has saved them, and they don't understand that, and they haven't recognized that in their heart. They're alive physically, but they're dead spiritually. All of us were dead spiritually before we came to know Christ. So this is what Paul's talking about. Here's the third one. The third is our eternal death. And Second Thessalonians uh, ver, uh, chapter 1, verse 9 says this, Speaking of those who refuse salvation are cast and are cast out into outer darkness. So this is, this is something to come. So it says, Hath he quickened, and I talked about that being, Italicized meaning it is not in the original Greek, and so that doesn't mean that it's 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 right or wrong. Uh, if you look, the ESV does not have it. Certain translations will, certain ones won't. I think it's just a matter of sometimes just making things um, make sense. And like I said, I believe that the writer put that in there because he knew what was about to come, and so um, the, I, at least King James did that. So uh, the next three verses are going to show uh, us our humanness. So everyone. Buckle up, put on your seatbelts, here we go. 
and our weaknesses and our need for a Savior. How many know that we need a Savior? Scripture says that our righteousness is as what? Filthy rags. The depravity of mankind. We live in a fallen world. And so uh, the, the last portion, it says we were dead. Here's the last portion of that scripture says trespasses. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. And I like this. There's a difference between trespasses and sin. And, and I, I like the correlation here. A trespass is when you step over line. When you trespass onto someone's property or someone trespasses on your property, that means that they cross the line that they should not have crossed, right? They were there uninvited. Now, uh, the trespass in our life means that we willingly crossed a line. We know what's right and wrong, and our trespasses, we willingly did it on our own. Now, sin, sin is the Greek word uh, harmatia, which means to miss the mark. We've heard that. How many have heard that before? The Greek word sin means to miss the mark, which is an old archery term, meaning basically uh, when someone went, and they missed the mark they, you know, to the target. They called it sin. So all you bow hunters, when you guys are practicing and you miss the mark, you can say, man, I just sinned. I just missed the mark, right? All right. A little, little joke, a little lighten up, right? Um, and that's what sin is. Sin means that we miss the mark of God's righteousness. Now, here's the difference. Trespasses means we willingly, knowingly do it. Sin sometimes Sometimes we sin and we don't even know, we don't even realize that we're sinning. Sometimes it may be intentional, sometimes it doesn't. But here's what I know about sin, and this is what Scripture says. Sin leads to death. Spiritually, oftentimes physically, and eternally. Sin leads to death. The wages of sin is, all right, you guys are with me. Verse 2 says this. In which you once walked, so it, it, it I mean, if you, if you were to read this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and it says, in which you once walked. So he's talking to believers here, because these are people that had originally walked in this, in this sin, and this trespasses, and now he's talking, you once walked. So the word walk here is translated to this, meandering. Anybody meander when you go to the store? Depends on what store, right? I don't know about you. When I go in the grocery store, I want to go straight in, grab what I need, and get out. It's always my goal. Now, uh, you know, sometimes you may go into a store that you like, and you may meander a little bit longer than you would. Now, like a store I don't mind meandering in is Bass Pro because there's so much to see and so much to do. But I don't really like meandering too much when I go into Target. Some of you say, that's my meandering store, right? Uh, but, but the word here is uh, in which you once walked or you meandered. Meandering is this. It's uh, our fallen state is, has had us going with the flow with no purpose or direction. When you're meandering, you don't have a purpose to your walk. It's not a reason. You're just existing. You're meandering along. If you want to get somewhere the slowest way possible, meander. I don't know why I'm going, I'm just doing it. And walking without a direction or a goal, look at this. The next portion says, following the course of this world. And the course of this world translates or it refers to the wind like a weather vane. Anybody have a weather vane? 
on your house, barn, anybody? Nobody Nobody does a weather vanes anymore? Anybody know what a weather vane is? All right. Uh, a weather vane, you know, they would put up and, uh, you know, an old farmer, he would see that weather vane and see the wind shift. He could say, hey, the wind just shifted, so maybe we have a storm coming. He could know which way the wind was blowing, and it would change the direction. But this is what, what Paul's saying here is this, the course of this world is like shifting winds. And our sins had us going whichever way the wind was blowing. We're meandering in the process with no purpose, and that's where we're at. Can I tell you this? The world system, and I'm not talking uh, politically, socially, I mean, in general, I'm talking everything about this world that has humans in control is a broken system. It's just, it's just the way it is. It's our, it's our fallen nature. And so here in this, the world system is broken, and this is implying whichever way the wind was blowing, we were going in our sins. So that means morally... If the world's winds were blowing this way, we were meandering over this way. Even if it's right, wrong, whatever. Politically, we're just following that in our sins. Culturally, we're just following it. It can go on and on and on and on and on. And something is pushing us further and further into sin. And Paul says this, that this was us. Look at this. The next portion of the scripture says, following the prince of the power of the what? Of the what? Air. Oh, you, you missed a good point right there. I just said the wind was blowing. So who is causing the wind to blow? Who is causing uh, uh, moral confusion? Who is causing the world to be topsy-turvy? Who is causing people to go and meander? He's blowing and he's pushing. So among them who were once, uh, or it says, it says, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Who are the sons of disobedience? Remember last week? I, I, I think it was last week I said there's the saints and there's the ain'ts. Who are the saints? Those who believe. And who are the ain'ts? The ones who don't believe in Jesus Christ. And so the sons of disobedience, those who do not know Jesus Christ. And so who is doing the blowing? Satan. And he, he was the one dictating the styles and the trends and the interests that so captivated you and me before we were saved. We were in one nature, right? Uh, we were still dead in our sins. We acted one way. We lived one way. We talked one way. We treated people this way before we knew Jesus Christ. And that wind is driving sinners and the sons of disobedience. You ever wonder why our world is such a fallen world? Because many people are being driven by the wind. The, the, the prince of the power of the air, he is driving people, whether they realize it or not, because they don't have their heart right with the Lord. Verse 3 says this, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Everyone look at your neighbor and say, that was me. Uh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And this is, this is, this is good stuff. Completely caught up in our own flesh and our own inclinations. How many of you love to do what you want to do? Hate, how many hate being told what you don't want to do? Think back to when you lived at home and your mom and dad told you what you had to do. Many of you, when you, when you grow up and you, you leave your parents' home and then you go back to visit your parents' home and they ask you to do something, you're like, I'm an adult now, I don't have to do that. And I don't have to respond that way. 
and and but you know oftentimes and I, uh, that may not be the best example but uh, but it's we want our own desires we want our own lust how do I satisfy what I want to do it's about me 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 kind of reminds me of a little kid I want I want I want right when your kid wants cereal and you're busy doing something and they just keep asking you, I want cereal, I want cereal. Mom, can I have cereal? Dad, can I have cereal? Can you help me get cereal? And you're like, I'm doing something right now. It's like we, you're not going to starve in the, the five minutes that I need between now and cereal time, I promise. But that's like us. That was our sinful nature. We want, we desire our own desires, whether that's. Uh, with our own lustful eyes or our own meandering around, following the wind that, that leads to our own lust. It's all about me. James says this, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his what? His what? Own d desires or his own lust. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to Sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth, the wages of sin is, sin always leads to death. Sin always leads to death. You got, you got, as a believer, you got to understand that. You got to know that, that when you, when you think, hey, I'm going to cross this, this line, and I'm going to willfully sin, you are on a bad path. You're not on a good path. Sin is, is and, and, and you can write this down. I love this saying, sin is not bad because it is forbidden. It's forbidden because it is bad. Let me say that again. That, that may have flew over your head. Sin is not bad because it is forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. The wages of sin is death. It always brings death. Look at this. And we're by nature children of wrath. And because of our sins, because of our own desires, we, and we're by nature the children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Not only were we dead by our sins, not only were we being blown away by sin, not only were we de depraved in our sin, as children of wrath, we were doomed by our sins. I told you, we were going down to a dark, dank, swampy place. I'm talking the depravity of man. And, and why, uh, why were we the children of wrath? Because the wrath of God abides on those who do not receive the gift of salvation. If you need a reference to that, Ephesians 5, 6 can point that out to you. So basically this, when you know Jesus Christ, the wrath of God, Jesus is the propitiation for our sin. Jesus stands in the gap for you. He covers your sins. And when the Father's wrath comes, he sees Jesus. He doesn't see you. And that's, that's called God's grace. I like this commentary. I saw this. The truth is denied in these days. Listen, I like this. The truth is denied in these days. Men speak of better self and the good spark. And man needs a new heart. Amen. Not just a new start. Bible says that he'll replace the old stony heart with a new one, right? So man needs a new heart, not just a new start. Now listen, a new life and not just turning over a new leaf. You must be born again. I, I talked about that on Sunday. You must be born again. You, you, you have to have a new life, a resurrection, not just a reformation, a regeneration, I said on Sunday, not just a reformation, not just a change of who you are, but a complete, the, the scripture says that, that we are made new, amen, 
So see, uh, uh, signing a pledge card will not suffice. No one can live a life for God until he first receives life from God. And I think that's a powerful commentary, and and I think that's something that we need to hear. So verses 1 through 3 in this is our human condition. Everyone say, whew, I'm glad that that's over. Verse 4, but God. So we're talking about human depravity there, verses 1 through 3, talking about what we can't do anything on our own. Sin had us bound. But look at this. I like this. But God, but God, look at this. The verses 4 through 7, the next uh, four uh, uh Uh, Three verses or four verses there refers to God's work for us. How many are so glad that God worked for us when he sent his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross? I'm grateful for that. And it says, but God. These are short words, but some words with some weight. These, These two words, but God. How many have a testimony in here and you're here today because but God. Because he stepped in the gap. You were in your own depravity. You were, in, you were meandering in life. You were lost. You were following your sinful nature. But God. I love that. And, and so uh, though we were doomed by death of sin, God broke through anyways. I love that about our Lord. There the word but can be translated to and God. It doesn't really change the meaning necessarily of, of what, what's about to say. It could be but God or and God. But I, I'm grateful that God saw me one day, and he saw my depravity, and he saw your depravity, and he said, I am going to break through in that moment because they need me. Why? I need it. I, and, and, and I say this, and I, and I respond to the grace of God, and I respond to the mercy of God, and I'm grateful for God's grace and mercy on my life. Say, Pastor, you preach about that a lot. You know why? Because I need it. And you need it. And we need it. And the more that I get in this thing, the longer I've been in it, the more and more I realize that I need God's grace and mercy each and every day. The more mature I get as a believer, the more I realize that I need him more and more. Verses 4 through 7 shows us God, God's work for us. But look at this. Being, being rich in mercy... But God, being rich in mercy because of the, of, of the great love with which he loved us. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So when did God break through? And, and what did he do? He, he loved you not because you're here on a Wednesday night. And I'm glad you're here on a Wednesday night, but that's not why, why he did it. He didn't break through because you decided to read your Bible today or because you're spiritual or because, you, you know, you're, you're the number one, you know, Christian. You're doing lots of things. You give to charity, whatever the case. That's not why he did it. He, he, and don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with all those things, but it's not anything that you've done. Look at this. He loved you at your worst. You know, when I got married, one of the things that I said was, for better or for worse. How many have ever had to love your spouse 
at your worst and maybe at their worst at times. There's been moments where we do that. But even at, at your worst, when you were in the depravity of sin, God loved you the same. He loved you at your worst. And let me tell you something. When he loved you at, his wor- at your worst, God was at his best in that moment. That's what I love about grace. When we think it's the worst thing, God's like, I'm about to show you how good I am. He loved me when I was spiritually dead. Look at this. The King James Version here says he, was, he has quickened us together with Christ. And this, that, this time it's not italicized, but it says, by grace you have been saved. While you were dead, by grace you have been saved. Amen. And indeed we have. Look at this. Verse 6 says this. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Not only did he bring you out of depravity, but he set you up at a high place. I I don't know about you. That just resonates in my spirit right now. Not only are we loved by the Lord, but we are lifted up by him. When, we, uh, when he raised us up together and made us sit with him in heavenly places. Look at this. John chapter 12. I remember this story of Lazarus. In John chapter 11, Lazarus is dead. And Jesus goes and he raises him from the dead. But if you go forward to John chapter 12, where do you see Lazarus at? He's no longer in the grave, but he's out of the grave. His grave clothes are off. And he's sitting at the table with Jesus. God did the same thing for you. He called you out of sin. He pulled you out of depravity. He pulled your grave clothes off the, the, of death and sin and trespasses. And he, he looked beyond those things. He saw the good in you. He pulled you out. And guess what? And if you have a relationship with him, you are seated with him at his table. And I love that. We can fellowship with him. We can talk to him. And we can learn from him. And here's the good news. Soon we'll be sitting with him at the marriage feast of the Lamb. We'll all be sitting with him. And I don't know about you, you don't hear a whole lot of people talking about heaven. But let me tell you something. You might want to get your heart right with the Lord because it's coming sooner than you think. Verse 7 says this. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So God raised us up to be in heavenly places that we might be trophies of his grace. You say, I don't know how I feel about that. Let me tell you something. I am a trophy of God's grace. I am walking here today because of God's grace. How many would raise your hand and say, I don't mind being a trophy of God's grace because I shouldn't be here today, but I want to be a trophy of his grace. Amen. And in order that people will look at you in the ages to come, and and the scripture says that there are seraphim and there are cherubim that will look at you and say, man, the the grace of God is unbelievable. Look how God loves them. Look what he's done for them. And I believe that they'll say this, that is amazing. That is amazing that God would show grace and mercy upon upon those people. Look at this, verse 8. I love this. I love, I love this next section of scripture right here. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through what? And this is not your, not yourself or not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So look at this. Uh, verses 8 and 9 is this. God's work in us. Everyone say God's work in us. 
I use these, these uh, scriptures oftentimes when I preach funerals. And the reason that I, I use these verses is I believe they explain grace and, I, and, and faith and their roles in becoming a believer in Christ. So why do you, why do, you do that at funerals? You know what? I want to give one thing that I do at funerals, when, because everyone's thinking about death at a funeral, but I want to remind people that there are consequences to their, to their choices and that if you're going to make it heaven, you're going to do it intentionally and not by accident. And so I, I usually lead off with, with, with this, with Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, or bring that in at some point. And you might say this. You say, hey, well, uh, TJ, isn't salvation a partnership between me and God? Isn't it, isn't it God's grace plus my faith, if I'm looking at that right? Well, uh, don't, don't get there too fast. Let, not too fast there, okay? Look at this. Romans 12, 3 says this, that God has given us all a measure of faith, right? God has given us all a measure of faith. And in that verse, and he's talking about, we use that measure of faith, how to evaluate ourselves and not to be so high-minded. But God has given us all a measure of faith. So God's grace plus the faith which he has given to me, I can't boast about any of that. God's given me the, the measure of faith that I have. God's given me his grace. And it's my job, my job is to activate that faith. And, those, and, and, and you may say, hey, what is my role in this partnership then? You know what you bring to the table? You ready for this? Sin. We know that because we talked about the depravity of ourselves and our man. When we come before God, we bring sin. It kind of reminds me of, you know, uh, the little child that goes out and picks all the dandelions for, for their mom. And though it may be precious to you, you know they're just a handful of dandelions and they aren't worth very much, right? But that's kind of like when we come before God, God, I've, I've, I've got this. And God's like, we bring sin and God's like, I'll take care of the rest. By I'll give you my grace, and I've given you a measure of faith to activate this, this thing. And so God does the heavy lifting. How many are glad that God does the heavy lifting? Man, I don't know about you, that, that takes a load off of me, knowing that it's not by, by the works. It's not that I have to do so many things, that I have to chant so much scripture, that I have to attend church you know, every day at certain times that I have to do all these things. And, and they're, they're, sometimes, you know what, we need to do those things. But, but listen, at the same token, it's only by God's grace that we're all standing here today. And the reason we cannot boast is it's not about our works. It's not enough to, to be good or to live good or to give to charities or to be kind. And listen, there's nothing wrong with all those. You ought to, you ought to exhibit those in your walk with Christ. And if you aren't, you need to reevaluate your walk with Christ because those things should be coming out of you naturally uh, if, you, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. But it's about faith in God and the grace of God. That's it. Faith in God and the grace of God. And in this partnership, I bring sin and he brings the grace and provides the faith. And we really can't boast about bringing anything really to the table because all we're bringing is sin and death. And that's why I get so jazzed, that's why I get so excited when I think about God's grace, because I know what I am. And I know where I come from, and I, I understand the nature of who I am. But on the flip side of that, we're, we're about to jump, jump from, from who God is in us to, to uh, who God is through us. On the flip side of that, now that I have a relationship with Christ, I know whose I am, and I know what I am. I'm no longer this, but I know where I remember where I came from. It's God's work in us that we cannot boast. It's him and him alone. Look at this, verse 10. 
I love this verse too. I love this verse. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And when you're saved, you ought to have good works following you. You don't do them to be saved, you ought, they ought to follow you. God prepared beforehand that, that we should walk in them. So here's verse 10 is this, God's work through us. Everyone say, God's work through us. So workmanship here is the Greek word poema, and there's a lot of Greek words that I'm picking out of this, uh, this tonight, but uh, that word literally means poem. It's where we get our word poem from. And thus we are, we are God's poetry. You are something beautiful. I don't feel beautiful. You, you are God's workmanship. You are God's masterpiece, one translation says. You are, God don't make junk. Stop beating yourself up. God does not make junk. Say, I, I don't feel like I'm, I'm any good. God doesn't make junk. He loves you. And, and, and many would say Christians uh, are not at all great. There's a lot of people that say, they say you guys are hypocrites, you guys are inconsistent, and you have many problems. And I say, yes, that's true. I understand that. I understand my nature. But, you know, my response to people like that is, you wouldn't believe how bad that you are too. I'm not saying that we're perfect. No one ever said that Christians were perfect. And if you compared us to our old state, you would begin to see that we are poetry. We are, we are beautiful. We are God's workmanship. We, are, we have been made anew. I love that. There's something about understanding our identity in Christ that gives us hope and strength. When we know whose we are, we understand where our, our feet, we understand we're grafted in. We understand that once we become saved, that, that God has us. When we understand that, man, we, we, we understand our identity and we can walk in authority that we couldn't walk in when we live, we're in a depraved state, right? When I know whose I am and, and what I am, I walk with more authority against the enemy, my flesh and the world. God has not given me a spirit of fear. Oh, I don't have to be anxious. I don't have to be scared. I don't have to be worried because God didn't give that to me. God has created me to walk in authority. And I love this, Ephesians, we're going to get there. In chapter 6, I mean, it, 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 he starts talking about taking, taking authority and what, the, what we have to do to take, take place to do that. And notice, it doesn't say you're God's perfect workmanship. It doesn't mean that, you, that you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you're going to live a perfect life. I'm, I'm glad because, man, that would be awfully hard to live up to. How many are perfect in here? Kristen would be the first to tell you that's not true. But not only are we God's poetry, but he's already planned good works for you. You know, God has already planned out your life. While you were still dead, he was working on these plans, and he already had these plans for you. So when we were saved, we could walk them out and fulfill them. I don't know about you, but God had, he knows you. And he knew you then, and he knows you now. He's got you in his hands. I love that. So if you need a second heading on the, on, the, on the tail end of this chapter is this, one in Christ, and he's talking here, verse 11 says this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the, uns, uh, the uncircumcision by what is called the, the circumcision, circumcision, which is made in the flesh 
by hands. Look at this, verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. God's, uh, uh, verses 11 through 22 deal with this. God's work among us. God's work among us. So Paul's saying here to the Gentiles, remember that you guys, remember who you used to be. And remember at one time without Christ, without hope, without God. I don't know if you know this, the Jews didn't get along with the Gentiles very good. They, they didn't like rubbing shoulders with them. They, they kind of tolerated them. They, they, they looked down upon them. And, and here's the thing, and Paul's saying this, hey, you Gentiles, you guys were in trouble. You had no hope of a Messiah. You had no knowledge of God. You had no future. I don't know about you, when I think about those things and I have to say, hey, God, that's who I was. I had no hope. I didn't understand it, but, but I didn't have a hope, but I, but I have a future. Look at this. Verse 13 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. <laughs> you were alienated and, and you didn't have a purpose, but guess what? The blood of Jesus covers It covers a lot of ground, and he brought you near. Look, verse 14 says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. I said there was hostility, and there was a war between the Jews and the Gentiles, the the circumcised and the uncircumcised. You you see it often in Scripture. And although at, at one time, you Gentiles, you had no hope, you had no God, you had no Christ, he made you one with the Jews who believe in Jesus. See, here's the thing. I, I love this. Romans 11. If you go to Romans chapter 11, it teaches us that we are grafted into the promises given to the Jews because of Jesus Christ. Verse 14. Here, here in Ephesians says this. that He says, through the blood of Christ, he's breaking down walls. How many know that the blood of Jesus breaks down walls? And what do you mean by that? How many can say that in our world today, we can be divided by a million things, right, right now? You've heard me say this week in, week out. We can, we can get divided. I, I could say, hey, Democrats on this side, Republicans on this side, and, and, you know, these people over here in this corner and weirdos over here, and everyone would break into their own little parts, right? Or... I could, you know, I mean, there's a million things that I could bring up right now that have so many walls and separation. And can I tell you what Jesus came to do? He came to tear down walls. How many remember, and and I don't remember because I was only three years old, but I remember seeing videos of it in, I believe it was 1984, when, when Ronald Reagan stood there talked to Mr. Gorbachev, and he said, tear down this wall. Because there was people on one side living in a free state and people on the other side living in a communist state. And these people were trying hard to get to this side. And I'm not saying, hey, this is right, this is wrong. But I just want to say this, that Jesus came, and when he came and he was on the cross, the veil was rent. The veil was rent. We could have access to the Lord. Jesus came to tear down walls. You know who builds walls? Me. Sometimes in my own thinking and in my own way, and I and 
to make it. I think it has to be this way. But I'm reminded, I'm not trying to pick on anybody. I'm not trying to get, get on to you. But I'm just saying Jesus came. And if Jesus could reconcile the Jews and, and, and the Gentiles who were in conflict with each other, if he could reconcile those people, he can reconcile anybody. And oftentimes there's walls of political beliefs. And while I have my own beliefs, you know, God still loves the soul of the person on the other side of, of my belief. And, and uh, the believers in Christ, Jews and Gentiles, were made one because of Jesus Christ. Look at this, verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinance that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. Catch that? You got Gentiles, you got Jews, and one man bringing, bringing them together. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace of those who were near. Verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. It's all because of Jesus. I like that amen back there. That's what I'm talking about. So what is God doing among us? Look at this, two things. He created a new man in verse 15. He also created a new body in verse 16. See, Jews and Gentiles, they used to feel such hostility toward one another that if a Jew brushed up against a Gentile in the marketplace, he'd have to go immediately and ceremonially cleanse himself. I'm not saying we're like that today, but whew. And the Gentiles would say this, that the Jews were the devil incarnate. Pretty harsh words to say about somebody, right? But look at this. I like this. Go back to verse 4. But God. But God. What did he do? He, he took those two groups, Jews and Gentiles, and brought them together into a new man, a new body, and that's the church of Jesus Christ. Amen. Look at this, verse 19. We're almost done. Everyone say, oh, we're almost done. Not quite as fast as Marcus, but, but, but getting there. So when you are uh, no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Hey, that's the name of our church. 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Not only did God create a new body, he's creating a new building. Built upon the foundation of the message of the apostles according to scripture and the prophets and the message is Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. That means, you know what the chief cornerstone's job was? They would position that stone first. And when they got that stone, then they could build the rest. Because that stone, if the chief stone was put correctly, then everything else would be in alignment. And let me tell you something. When we get the right perspective of Jesus Christ, when we know who he is and we 
if he is in the rightful place, everything else in our life will be come into alignment. And this is what we need to know. The building, the building that, that, that Paul's talking about here, it's, it's not done. It's constantly growing. It's constantly growing still to this day. Every day when someone comes to know Jesus, it is growing. 1 Peter 2.5 says that we are living stones being fit together to build a holy priesthood. And as a living stone, you know what happens as a living stone? We're growing ourselves. We, we expand in our own understanding of God's ways. But what happens is inevitably friction begins to happen. Sometimes you get put by a stone that is rubbing you the wrong way. Some of you say, I've been married to that stone for many years. And, and that stone is, and, and, and here's the thing. This is what I've learned. I don't get to pick who's beside me and around me, but God just places me, and there I am. And you know what? Sometimes that is rough. Some people will just rub you the wrong way. Anybody know anybody like that just rubs you the wrong way? Can I tell you something? I believe that God puts you next to those people oftentimes because he is allowing the rough edges to be rough, rubbed off of you. And he is working on you, and he is cleaning you up. Look at this. In, in 1 Kings chapter 6, we know that the stones for the temple were cut away from the temple. They means they, they would cut them away from the temple so that when they brought them to the temple, that they wouldn't hear the sound of a chisel there if it didn't fit. If it didn't fit, they would literally take the stone away. They would do it, and then they would bring it back to, to bring it there. And so, so, so in that case, knowing that, that beautiful picture that we see there is that there will be no more chiseling going on. When that happens, when that happens, for us, that means that we are going to be in heaven. When we're in perfect peace with everybody and there's no chiseling going on in our life, no hammer sounds or no chiseling in our life, we are going to heaven, and, and we're all stones, Jew and Gentile. Everyone say Jew and Gentile. Say this, male and female, brother and sister. Okay, we're all in this, and God is pulling us together, and we all fit together perfectly. And the chiseling and shaping will leave, will have, have been done, will be done on this earth. And I say this, and now this is not something I really want to get excited about, but I say this, Lord. Let the hammering take place because, Lord, I, I need chiseling in my life, and I, 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 need, I need you to help make sure that I'm fitting where I need to fit and that I'm level and that I'm in the place that I need to be. And as living stones, when we do that, we say, God, begin to work on us. We become a holy habitation in which God can dwell forever. Amen. How many know that God loves his church? How many are so thankful for the grace and the mercy of God? 